you want to turn your Bibles to Acts 2, 41 through 42. That'll be our text this morning. Uh, early, and as you're turning there, I just want to uh, share a little bit more about my background and how it relates uh, to this passage and how this passage has helped me. Because uh, early on in my Christian faith, I had the conviction, uh, like many other Christians do, that the Christian life was mainly an individual pursuit of holiness. Uh, and I'm not saying that pursuing holiness is bad. It certainly isn't. Uh, we should do it. Uh, but I had a very individualistic view of my faith, and that affected how I read the Bible. Uh, I understood all of the, the commands that we find in the scriptures as something that I needed to pursue obedience to in isolation uh, from the local body. And so I made lists, and I, I checked them off. Right? I made Bible reading plans. And I followed them. And attending a service on Sunday morning was certainly part of the list of things I was devoted to. But being a part of the local church definitely wasn't, in my mind at least, a significant part of what God was using to cause me to grow in my faith. And I later learned that there was a danger uh, in thinking like that. Uh, There was a danger for many reasons. But one reason is just uh, because it's misinformed and how God works in the life of his people. But the real danger is that when you believe that your spiritual maturity depends on your ability to follow a list that you have created for yourself, one of two uh, things will happen. Uh, One is that you will either uh, fail to accomplish your daily tasks and feel overwhelmed with despair and doubt. And then the second thing that can happen, which is probably worse for your soul, is that you will accomplish everything that you set out to do and be filled with pride. On different, different seasons of my life, I've experienced uh, both of those things. But while I was in college especially, I fell into the second category. I was killing it, as the kids <laughs> said. I followed my uh, reading plan daily. I listened to John MacArthur daily. I evangelized my unbelieving friends frequently. And because I was doing those things, and many of the Christians around me weren't, I started uh, to think pretty highly of myself. And because I was pursuing these things in isolation from the church, I started to view the church with a critical eye, as if it was something that I wasn't a part of. And after years of that, by the providence of God, uh, he allowed me to fall into many of the sins that I was so previously critical of my Christian friends for. And I started to unravel uh, into an undisciplined mess. But God used my moral failures for good uh, in the sense that during that humbling season of life, uh, I really uh, was forced to come to grips with how I was saved in the first place and also what I was saved into this morning's passage is just going to be two uh, short verses, but in these two verses, we learn that when God saves us, he doesn't just save us as individuals, which he does do that, but then we are added to something, which is his church, his body. And once we are added uh, to the church, 
then we are to devote ourselves to certain things together. So let's start by reading the text, and then we will pray for the Lord's help to understand it and believe it. Acts 2, 41 through 42 says, first in verse 41, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your name would be honored as we gather this morning on this day that you have set aside. We confess that we often come together on Sunday mornings unprepared and burdened with thoughts about some difficult circumstances that we encountered throughout the week. And anxious thoughts about these things can cause us to be distracted, and they even cause us to take our eyes off of Christ. But I pray that as we study your word together, that it would cause us to look outside of ourselves and look to your son as he has offered us in the gospel. And that by looking to your son, we would find rest. I pray now that you would help us understand your word, that we would be willing to receive it, and that we would trust in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two words found in our passage that can really serve as an outline uh, for this morning. And the two words are added, which is found in verse 41. And the second word is found in verse 42, which is devoted. Verse 41 shows us how we are added to the church. And verse 42 teaches us that once we have been added to the church, what we should be devoted to. And I understand that some of your Bibles, there might be a heading in between those two verses, uh, which is inconvenient. But just know that that heading was not a part of the original scriptures, but it's added in our English translation so that we can find stuff and they can be helpful sometimes. But in this case, not so much. Verse 41 it speaks about a a group of people who had received his word. Now you may be thinking, received whose word? Right, what is is happening right now? Where where are we? Uh, And that is the difficulty of parachuting into a text like this without any context. It's difficult to understand what's going on. Uh, And when you try to provide too much of the background, the whole sermon ends up being a summarization of passages that no one has been reading lately, right? Uh, So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to try to set up the context, but I will do my best to keep it uh, short, right, and to the point. So some of the background, uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, which is the prequel to Acts, the book we're in, ended with Christ ascending to heaven. And then the book of Acts begins with the Spirit descending uh, from heaven uh, upon the disciples who were all in Jerusalem. And there was also a large crowd of Jewish people in Jerusalem, and even more than usual, because uh, many had traveled there to participate in one of, the, one of their great uh, annual feasts, which was uh, Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. And as the Spirit descended upon his people in a visible and miraculous way, his apostles and disciples started to 
uh, prophesy. But it wasn't just the, the good old-fashioned prophecy, like, thus saith the Lord, right? But there was something additionally supernatural uh, going on um, because everyone who was gathered there was understanding what they were saying in their own language. And, and that is what speaking in tongues was. Right? Today, when people claim to speak in tongues, it's in a language that no one understands. But in the book of Acts, the sign of speaking in tongues was for understanding, not confusion. And this sign was given for a purpose. One reason is that uh, just as God has always done, God was confirming uh, who his spokespeople were. He was confirming that his apostles were speaking his words. And so that's a part of it. But also some theologians think that uh, this event was, was almost like a re reverse Tower of Babel. Right? At the Tower of Babel, when there was a united assembly in opposition to God, God came in judgment and confused their languages. But at Pentecost, God came and accompanied the preaching of his word with the gift of tongues, which unconfused the languages. Right? At Babel, God brought confusion. In Acts, uh, God brought understanding. And this was to show that the truth that they were about to proclaim was for all nations and all people groups. And as you can imagine, this, uh, this visible manif manifestation of the presence of God descending upon his people, it drew a crowd. So it's in that setting that Peter stood up amongst uh, that gathered people to preach. And he preached about Christ. And he preached about Christ to the people who were actually responsible for delivering Christ over to the Romans to be crucified. And in his sermon, uh, he proved to them from their own scriptures, right, from the Old Testament, that all of the events that they had just witnessed concerning Christ were uh, prophesied about in the scriptures that they claimed to believe. I, we can't go in detail into uh, Peter's sermon, but just as a general uh, highlights, uh, he showed that the pouring of God's spirit upon his people was prophesied about in the book of Joel. The fact that Christ would die and be resurrected was prophesied about in Psalm 16. And the fact that Christ would ascend and be exalted at the right hand of the Father, where all of his enemies would be made a footstool under his feet, that was prophesied about in Psalm 110. So in Peter's sermon, he uh, tied together all of these different Old Testament passages to show them that without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus was the Christ. And he showed them that convincingly from the scriptures that they had possessed as the Jewish people for something like a thousand years. And then we read his conclusion in Acts 2, verse 36 when he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then we read about their response to Peter's sermon in verse uh, 37 through 40. Find verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, ultimately, Peter's sermon was a message of hope that these people who previously rejected their own Messiah, they rejected Christ, could be saved from all of their sin by looking to him by faith, who they previously denied, and be baptized in his name. So when our text says in verse 41 uh, that they received his word, this is the word that they were responding to. It's not talking about receiving the word just by hearing it, but this is talking about receiving the word by wholly trusting in it. This is talking about saving faith. I think if you hold to, which we do, sola fide, Right? the fact that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, then having a good understanding of what true faith is, is, is pretty important. When you look at all of the passages in the scriptures that talk about saving faith, it becomes clear that true faith is made up of three parts. Right? And this was the reformers, or the conclusion of the reformers. And uh, I think it's pretty self-evident that they got it right. The three parts of true faith are knowledge, assent, and trust. So the first part that makes up true faith is knowledge. I want to show where this comes from biblically. Uh, the first part that makes up true faith is knowledge. And because uh, in order to believe the gospel, we first have to be familiar with the basic facts or content of the gospel. This is why Paul says in Romans, how will they believe in what they have not heard? Right? We can't believe in what we don't know. Uh, we can come to certain conclusions about God from natural revelation. Right? We can conclude that there is a God and he is powerful and uh, several other things. But um, we, and we can come to those conclusions through uh, the world that God has created, through natural revelation. Because we are living in God's world. And we are made in his image. And so there are certain truths that we can arrive from, um, from that. But we can't learn by looking at the stars that uh, we can't learn Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right? The heavens declare the glory of God. It says that in Psalm 19. But they don't declare that Jesus kept the law on our behalf right? and died in our place. Uh, that truth is revealed in his word. And the church has been commissioned by Christ to take that word to the ends of the earth. But even if the word is heard, basic knowledge of the facts of the gospel is not in and of itself saving faith. Uh, just to provide an example of that, I listened to a debate years ago uh, with Christopher Hitchens. And he's a, he was a famous atheist who's since passed on. And uh, he was summarizing the view of the pastor uh, that he was about to debate because he, in this interview, he was surprised that he was actually debating a Christian who believed the Bible, right? So as he's summarizing what his opponent believed, he started to recite the Apostles' Creed pretty much just from memory, word for word. Well, my opponent, uh, this pastor, he believes in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. He believes in Jesus Christ 
his only son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, right? He just goes on. He's just rattling off what Christians believe. But Chris, uh, Christopher Hitchens had the basic knowledge of the gospel, right? He understood it, but he did not believe it was true. And so that leads to the second part of true saving faith, which is assent. Assent is not just knowing the basic content of the gospel, but it is an acknowledgement that it is actually true. But even assent to the truths of the gospel is not true faith. Uh, to pro- provide another example, in Luke 4, 33-34, Jesus is casting out a demon, and it records what happens. It says, In the synagogue there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, let us alone. He's speaking to Jesus here. Let us alone. What business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Right? And that kind of sheds light on the passage in James when it says, so you believe in one God. Fantastic. Right? Even the de- demons believe uh, and shudder. The demons had knowledge of Christ and they knew it was true. That's a scent but they were still holy against him. And I'm not saying that the demons have the ability to be redeemed like we do. I'm just providing this as an example to show that the knowledge of the basic facts of the gospel and a sense even that it is true, that still does not describe what true faith is in the scriptures. So the third part of true faith is trust, a personal trust. True faith includes a personal receiving and resting upon Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. True faith includes knowledge of Christ. And in our text, uh, uh, the crowd was responding to a sermon that they, did, that they had just heard about Christ. Uh, and so they were informed by the preaching of the word of this knowledge they needed to trust him. But then when it says that they were cut to the heart, it shows that they believed what they were hearing was true. Right? That's evidence of assent here. They weren't hearing it and being completely unaffected by it. They were hearing about their sin and were cut to the heart. They were assenting to the truth. And when they said, what shall we do? Peter pointed them away from themselves and to look to Christ as he instructed them to repent from their own dead works. Right? To repent of their um, belief about Christ and to receive Christ and be baptized in his name for the forgiveness of sins. But it's also important to know that true saving faith does not mean that it is a perfect faith. True faith has knowledge of the gospel, a sense to its truth, and a personal trust, a resting and receiving upon Christ. He's the object. That's true faith. But a true faith does not mean it's perfect faith or a strong faith. Because it is not the quality of our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith. And if it wasn't true that someone can have a true saving faith and at the same time have it be weak, then some of the statements that we find in the New Testament wouldn't make any sense. In the Gospels, Christ often rebuked his disciples when he said, Oh, you of little faith. In Luke 17, 5, the disciples asked the Lord to increase their faith. In Mark 9, 14 through 30, 
a father uh, came to Jesus and he was asking uh, him to heal his son. He was asking him to heal him because he was inflicted by a demon and he had weak faith. He said, Jesus, if you can do anything, right? If you can do something, please have mercy on us. And Jesus said, all things are possible for him who believes. And what the man said next resonates with everyone who has ever struggled with doubt. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. It is possible to have true saving faith, but to also have it be weak. But God was pleased to give his church the means of grace by which he uses to nourish and strengthen the faith that we have. And one of those means that he uses is baptism, which is found in our text in verse 41. It says, notice, notice how it says, uh, those who received his word were baptized. And what a blessing it is that the, the next thing to be done in the believer's life after a credible profession has been made is to receive a visible sign of the promises that he has trusted in. Baptism is an ordinance given to us by Christ in the covenant of grace. And it's also a sign or a sacrament. Uh, Augustine defined a sacrament as a visible sign of a sacred thing or a visible sign of a sacred uh, promise. So the ministry of the word, right? When the word is preached, it preaches to the ear. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, it reaches the, the heart but the sacraments preach the same truths to the eye. Lamentations 3.51 says, Mine eye affecteth mine heart. Because we are complex creatures made up of both body and soul, what our body sees right, and experiences affects our hearts. And that can work in a negative sense. That can work to discourage us. But in the visible signs that God has given us, it has the opposite effect. And in our modern context, we often think of baptism. Um, and at least this is my background. Uh, we often think of back, uh, baptism as a visible sign of our devotion to God. Or a sign of our submission um, of Christ. Oh, sorry, it's a sign of our submission to the Lordship of Christ. But the emphasis is on what we're deciding to do, what we've devoted ourselves to. And there is an element of that. We'll talk about that later. But baptism is first a sign unto the party baptized. That's what our confession says. So when you are baptized, it is a sign unto you. It is designed to assure you of the promises that we have trusted in by faith. And to be specific, baptism assures us of three things. And the first, the, the first thing that baptism assures us of is that our fellowship or union with, uh, we have fellowship or union with Christ in his death and resurrection. We have been, by faith, united to Christ. And that means what is true of the head is true of the body. Right? He died, so we have died with him. And you may be thinking, well, why would dying with Christ be good news? When Romans 6 8, Paul is uh, he's speaking about the significance of baptism. Uh, he says this. He says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then it says in verse 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. When, when he says consider yourselves, right, he said this is Christ died, he rose, never to die again. And then he says, even so, uh, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's saying consider this, uh, consider by faith that this is true of you. And then he goes into the implications of that in verses 12 through 13. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, how is it uh, that we can live in such a way that sin does not reign in us? That leads to the conclusion. In verse 14, he says, the, the, the way that we can live in such a way that sin does not reign in us. So the reason why we can do that is because verse 14, it says, For sin shall not be mastered over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, this is a wonderful gospel truth that baptism assures us of. In baptism, we have died with Christ. And when we died with Christ, we were released from the law. In a sense. But Paul goes on to help us understand that in, in Romans 7. Uh, he gives us an analogy to help us understand uh, this further, how when we died, there was something that changed with our relationship to the law when we died with Christ. And in this analogy, he compares our relationship to the law of God to the obligations that are owed in a marriage covenant. So while the married, married parties are both alive, they are bound by covenantal obligations to one another. But when one of them dies, the living party is released from those obligations. So this is relevant uh, to baptism in this way. As image bearers of God, uh, we are obligated to keep God's law perfectly. But when we fell in Adam, our hope of attaining righteousness by keeping the law was utterly lost. But when we died with Christ, we were released from the law as a covenant of works. And when we rose with Christ to newness of life, our relationship to the law was entirely different. Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf, and we are united to him. So now, as our confession puts it, we are not under the law as a covenant of works, but we relate to the law or we're under the law as a rule of life. As believers who have died and risen with Christ, the law can no longer condemn you. But Luther was famous for saying the law accuses. But when we died with Christ and rose with him, we were released from the law and its accusing power. We were released from the law as a covenant of works and its obligations. And as believers um, who have risen, risen with Christ to newness of life, the law is now a lamp unto our feet. Right? It shows us what is good and what is righteous, but it has no condemn, condemning power when we fall, right? When we sin against the law, it still shows us that we've sinned, but it has no condemning power because we're not under the law, we're under grace. 
And as Christians, uh, when we sin, right, we can certainly come under God's fatherly discipline. And we're taught not to despise his discipline. His discipline has kept me from all sorts of despair. His discipline keeps me from sinning all the way into hardened unbelief. So as, as Christians, when we sin, we can come under God's fatherly discipline, but we will never come under his wrath because we have died with Christ and risen with him. We're not under law, but under grace. And this is one of the gospel truths that baptism assures us of. So I said earlier that baptism is a sign of at least three things. One is what we just talked about. It's a sign of our fellowship or our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. The second thing it assures us of is that our sins have been washed away. And the third is that it's a sign of, of our giving up uh, ourselves unto God to walk in newness of life with him. So baptism primarily is given to us to reassure our hearts of what God has done. But it also is an acknowledgement on our part that we are not our own. We have been bought by the precious blood of Christ, and so we belong to him. And if we are united to him, that means that we have been made a part of his body, the church. Benjamin Badome, I'm always not sure how to say that last name, he wrote uh, an exposition of, uh, to the Baptist Catechism, right, where he provides uh, questions, and then he will provide a, an answer uh, directly from Scripture, and it helps you understand the Catechism. But he said this, he said, Is baptism an engagement to yield ourselves unto God? He says, Yes. Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, Romans 6, 13. And is baptism an engagement to live in brotherly love? Yes, for we are baptized into one body, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So as we understand baptism to be a sign of our fellowship with Christ and the forgiveness of sins, we would still be deficient in our understanding of uh, this sacrament if we didn't also see that it is a sign of our fellowship with his body, meaning the church. And that is why our text says that those who received his word were baptized. And that day, in verse 41, they were added about 3,000 souls. And in Jerusalem that day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. And they were added the same way that anyone has ever been added to the church. Right? After a valid profession of faith in Christ, they were baptized in his name and they uh, were received by the church into membership. But then uh, once someone has been added to the church, we see that the, the body of Christ becomes devoted to certain things. And that brings us to the second point, or the second word in our outline. One was how are we added to the church? And two, once you are added to the church, what are we to be devoted to? Look at verse 42. It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We see four things the church was devoted to here. And these uh, four things are pillars of any uh, true church. 
The first one mentioned is that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. Now, if you do a scan of the New Testament, it's hard not to see that the uh, apostles' teaching was centered on Christ and him crucified. Right? John Gill said that Christ was the author, the preacher, and the subject of their doctrine. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, that when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when writing to the Romans, Paul said in Romans 1.15, So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And John Calvin said, while commenting on this text, he says, Wherever the pure voice of the gospel doth sound, where men continue in the profession thereof, where they exercise themselves in hearing it, that they may profit, with all, without all doubt, there is the church. Now it's obvious to see that the, the apostolic teaching proclaim the truths of the gospel. And their example shows us that the church needs to hear those truths. Some of us have come from church contexts where preaching Christ was replaced with moralism. The sermons were about how to be a better husband or how to be more courageous uh, and all sorts of things. Right? And then if the gospel was preached in that context, uh, normally at the end of the service, it was preached past you. Right? And you knew that it was preached past you because uh, it was always uh, prefaced uh, with something along the lines of, if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, then you need to know. And then the gospel was preached. And I remember one time as the gospel was uh, being preached past me in this way, to uh, whoever the pastor suspected was an unbelieving visitor in the back. And I heard the truths, right? That all who confessed with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. And I remember thinking, I have this vivid memory, I remember thinking growing up that I wish that's how it worked for me. I wish I could just believe in his name and be saved. And the reasons I thought uh, that way is because after years of hearing self-improvement sermons from the pulpit, I started to see the gospel as something that got me in the door when I was eight. But now I had to work for it, right? And if I didn't attain a certain level of holiness or discipline um, through the spiritual disciplines that I did by myself, then I would prove that I was never really saved in the first place. And I think that mindset that I had was a result of not being a part of a church that was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the apostles' doctrine. The church that was born in Acts 2 by the preaching um, of this word was devoted to sound doctrine, and that should serve as an encouragement to us that we need to be devoted to it as well, and we need to be devoted to it together. And it's easy to miss this in our like hyper-individualistic uh, society, but their devotion to the apostles' teaching was a corporate activity. I just want to throw this out there as an interesting 
historical insight because I think it helps us understand uh, what it means to be devoted to the apostles' teaching together. Right? Out of this church of 3,000-something people, 3,000-plus people, do you know how rare it would have been for a family to have a personal copy of all the scriptures in their home? Right? There, there was no goatskin-covered uh, Old Testament sitting on the shelf. Now, they, they certainly could have had a scroll here and there, like a scroll of Isaiah. Uh, and they certainly had more of an emphasis uh, during that time on memorization than we do. So they had some stored away, right? But almost out of necessity, they had to pursue being devoted to the apostles' teaching corporately. Right? There was no staying home and listening to the sermon online, Right? And that is why it was so important that when the church gathered, that the scriptures were read aloud and the scriptures were taught and that they were preached. And it was the duty in, in the early church and today of the officers of the church to ensure that this is done. And it's the duty of the members of the church to not neglect the hearing of it. Now look back to verse 42. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. This is why I mentioned earlier that when I saw the Christian life as an individual pursuit of holiness, I was reading the Bible wrong. I would hear imperatives or commands like walk in a manner worthy of the calling, and I would immediately think to myself, the spiritual disciplines. But when you read the passage and passages like it in, in this context, you get a different perspective. Ephesians 4.1 says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Walking in a manner worthy of the calling meant to pursue God-honoring fellowship with one another. And the fellowship that we have flows from our doctrine. Because, uh, because of the gospel, we do not pursue obedience to God to attain any merit of our own. Right? And even if we attained to the highest level of holiness uh, and of, of good works that is possible on this side of heaven, you were the most holy that a human could be, uh, it would still fall so utterly short of what is demanded. But in the covenant of grace, what God demands, he freely gives. Our sins are pardoned, the law has been fulfilled, and he has accounted uh, us as righteous uh, because of Christ. And so with that doctrine in mind, one of the reasons we pursue holiness and good works in the Christian life is for the good of the brethren or the fellowship. Right? You don't need good works to be justified but your brother might need your good works to uh, encourage his soul. As, as I was preparing this week, I learned uh, that the Greek word for one another, the phrase, is used a hundred times in the New Testament. Texts like bear one another's burdens or don't bite and devour one another, 1 John. I think the idea is there is not cutting each other down with our words. Uh, outdo one another in showing honor. 
It's, those are scattered throughout, throughout the New Testament a uh, hundred times. And this emphasis on loving one another is even applied to our singing. Admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And that reminds me of, of last year when Aubrey and I and uh, my parents and my brother's family and all the all the family went out to Idaho and uh, I looked up Reformed Baptist churches and there was one, one small Reformed Baptist church in a uh, predominantly Roman Catholic area. And so that's where we went. And when we showed up, we doubled the size of the church as, as a family. And uh, there was a pastor there named Pastor Kurt. He moved out there to Idaho uh, to retire. Uh, he was an elderly uh, man, and he had experienced a lot of health conditions. He had jaw cancer, uh, and he needed to uh, have surgery. And the complications from the surgery drastically impacted his ability to speak. Uh, when he prayed, you had to strain to understand uh, what he was saying. Uh, and I was encouraged by this man. Uh, I don't remember the sermon. You know, I don't remember a lot about the service, but I remember being encouraged by the fellowship and seeing his love for the saints. Because when he showed up in Idaho, he was intending on retiring from ministry due to all of his health complications, but he found a church, a Reformed Baptist congregation with no pastors, and he found himself once again called into the ministry, and he, he did all, he gave all that he had to those people. And uh, along with his jaw complications and speech, he had nerve damage that caused his hand to be stuck in this position, right? So he's typing sermons, with one finger and, and, pre and preaching, uh, not being able to speak the way he wanted. And I still remember how this relates to singing. At the end of the service, when he stood up, not being able to sing the way he wanted to sing, with his hands raised in a position that he didn't want them in, and he said, praise God from whom all blessings flow. So I don't remember a lot about that service, but I was blessed by the fellowship and the love that they had from one, uh, for one another. And this kind of love for one another is what the church is to be known for. Right? Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So verse 42, it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. Now some argue that the, the phrase breaking of bread here is shorthand for just sharing common meals together. Right? And the reasons they would say that is because uh, the breaking of bread that phrase was used uh, by the Jewish people to describe a custom that they had of breaking the bread as a blessing to start their meals. So that's the reasons. Um, and I want to share why or some reasons why I think that's wrong. Um, the phrase breaking of bread was never used as a reference for the entire meal, 
but only for the customary blessing at the beginning of one. So that's how that phrase was used. So with that in mind, if you don't take the view that this is referring to the Lord's Supper, then your only other option is to interpret this as if the, the early church was devoted to blessing their meals in a particular way. So I think there's good reasons for taking the view that this is talking about uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The phrase breaking of bread in our context is found within a list of corporate worship activities. It would be oddly placed right, to have corporate, a list of corporate things that we do together as the body and then uh, a devotion to a customary way to begin a meal together. <laughs> and then when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the night he was betrayed, it says that when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So obviously I feel pretty strongly that this means the church was devoted to observing the Lord's Supper, which started with the breaking of bread. And, and we're devoted to it, or this church was devoted to it, because he gave it to us, and he told us to do it in remembrance of him. And so here the church is in Acts 2.42 doing it. Right? They were devoted to it. So what are we doing when we come to the table as a church? And I'm thankful to be in a church that does it every Lord's Day. Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And there's some irony uh, in that for the apostles, because as Jesus was being crucified, the apostles were ashamed of his death. If you remember shortly after taking the Lord's Supper together, and shortly after Peter proclaimed that he would be willing to die with Christ. When Christ was actually being seized uh, by the Romans, it says in Mark 14:50 that they all left him and fled. And then with, within the same 24-hour period, Judas betrayed him, Peter denied him, and his disciples left him. And Psalm 69 actually depicts the shame and the abandonment that Christ uh, would endure during that time. In uh, Psalm 69, 20, it says, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. When someone uh, considers the death of Christ without any understanding, it looks like defeat. And that's exactly what happened uh, to the apostles. But when we understand what his death accomplished, then not only are we not ashamed of his death, but we, are actually, we actually proudly proclaim it. So, so what does his word tell us about uh, what his death accomplished? Romans 5, 8 through 11 says, God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. 
Isaiah 53.5 says that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. So when we come to the Lord's table together, uh, we proclaim his death until he comes. And we do that because all of our hope is resting in the fact that we have been reconciled to God by the death of his son. In many churches today, when they observe uh, the Lord's Supper, it's not, unfortunately, it's not causing anyone to look outside of themselves for hope and causing people to look to Christ by faith. But it actually causes people to look inward and become morbidly introspective. And I experienced this as well. Uh, for the long t- uh, a long time, the Lord's sep- Supper felt like nothing more than a quarterly opportunity to question my salvation before drinking grape juice. And the reason that was the case is there was often a call to serious self-examination prior to coming to the table. And I understand that Paul used those words, right? When he wrote to the Corinthians, um, he said that. He said to examine yourselves. Um, but there's often, what I've found, is there's often an intention added to Paul's words or an application uh, provided with it that is entirely invented. John Calvin said that the self-examination that we do as believers is not torture. We do not look inward to determine if we are worthy to come to the table, but we examine ourselves to ensure that we are coming to the table accompanied with faith in what this sacrament represents. The Lord's table is not for perfect people, but for a believing people. It's not, and it's not even required to be a perfectly believing people. Because this means of grace is one of the things that God has given to his people to strengthen our faith. John Calvin also uh, said this about coming to the table with a real but an imperfect faith. He said, it is not a perfect faith or repentance that is required to come to the table as some by urging beyond due bounds a perfection that can nowhere be found. They would shut out forever from the supper every individual of mankind. If, however, you aspire after the righteousness of God with the earnest desire of your mind and humbly under a view of thy misery, do wholly lean upon Christ's grace and rest upon it. Know that thou art a worthy guest to approach the table and worthy in this respect that the Lord does not exclude thee. For faith, when it is but begun, makes those worthy who were unworthy. This ordinance was given to us by our Savior to remember him, and we are to observe it until he comes. And so until that day, when he comes, uh, we observe it uh, over and over again. And we need that repetition because sometimes in the Christian life, our gaze can, for, for a variety of reasons, our gaze can drift from Christ. And the truths of the gospel start to fade into the background. But the table reorients our minds to the sacrificial death of Christ 
It reminds us that even if you first believed when you were eight, like I did, and you have, you've had many moral failures since then, it reminds us that the gospel is still good news for you. If you barely made it in the door this morning, and your affections for Christ aren't welling up within you like they should, the, the table reminds us the gospel is still good news for you. And if you struggled with the same sin with this week that you struggled with the week before, the table reminds us that his body was broken for us and his blood was spilled so that we could be forgiven. And as we look to Christ each week in this sacrament, our faith is strengthened, our repentance is renewed, and just like we eat a common meal to nourish our bodies, Christ has given us this meal to nourish our souls. So we should be devoted to it and devoted to observing it often. Then the last thing the church must be devoted to is prayer. Because like it says in Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, the labor builds in vain. This is a spiritual conflict that we find, our, uh, find ourselves in. And as the church, Jesus taught us to pray for his kingdom to come, for his kingdom to advance. And as we pray for that, we, we uh, pray understanding that his kingdom is entirely different than all other kingdoms that have been built. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And Abraham Booth uh, wrote an essay basically commenting on that statement of Christ, that his, his kingdom is not of this world. And he shows the difference between uh, the secular kingdoms of this world and the spiritual kingdom that Christ is building in his church. And he says of the secular kingdoms that craft and violence, injustice and cruelty have been commonly used in the founding, supporting, and extending of secular kingdoms. Then he provides a few examples. He says, the Roman Empire was founded and grew to its height in blood. And even the Jewish Republic was established, enlarged, and defended by force. Right? It, was, it was enlarged with the sword. But then he goes on to say that the instruments employed by our anointed prince, by our savior, in building of his monarchy were of a character quite the reverse. Not only has Christ used weak men and uneducated men to build his kingdom, but he has also used entirely spiritual means. Abraham Booth says again, yes, by the instrumentality of those unlettered and plain men did our Lord erect his kingdom or establish the gospel church. In making war upon Satan's empire, evangelical truth and spiritual gifts, laborious preaching and ardent prayer fortitude, patience, and a holy example, these were the arms they used. And such were the militia, and such the armor, employed by our divine Savior, yet perfectly suited to the nature of his kingdom. For it is an empire not of secular power and external pomp, but of truth and of righteousness and love and of peace. So the church must be devoted to prayer because his kingdom is advanced not by the sword, but by the sword of truth. It's advanced by the word preached. 
And as his word is preached and his church prays for his kingdom to come, we know that many will receive his word, be baptized, and added to his church. And it's in this way that his kingdom will advance and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, so thankful for the, not only the word, but also the sacraments. And we understand that all of the things that you have given uh, us to do and to participate in on the Lord's day is meant to nourish and strengthen us, to nourish and strengthen our, our hope, uh, to, to cause us to look to your son with more conviction and more faith. So I pray that we would um, tend to these means, that we would not neglect them, that we would prepare for them. And uh, I pray that as we participate in the Lord's Supper even now, that you would use it uh, for the purpose that you gave it, which is to cause us to look to Christ, to proclaim his death, and to nourish our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.